Welcome to The Breakdown with James Lankford, where Oklahoma Senator James Lankford discusses policy issues in Congress. Thank you for listening today. This is The Breakdown. Senator James Langford from Oklahoma back with another episode of The Breakdown. The Breakdown is the opportunity to take all the big news topics of the day, try to break it down and see if we can understand a little bit more, try to make you the smartest person on your Zoom call or at the water cooler, hopefully if you're getting a chance to do face-to-face meetings again. Listen, there's a lot going on right now in the news on Israel, uh, and there's a lot of dialogue about what's happening in Israel and between Hamas and the Gaza Strip, and there are some folks that know the region extremely well, and there are some folks that don't know it at all. And when you hear the numbers and the quantity of things like 3,000 rockets that have been fired out of Gaza, you start thinking, what, what, why did people fire 3,000 rockets, and when has that ever happened before, and what does that look like? So we want to be able to walk through the conflict, not what's happened today on the conflict, but what's where did this conflict come from and where do things go and what does this look like now and is there any real progress because for some people they ride off the Middle East and say there's always going to be conflict and for other folks that are just starting to pay attention to say has this been going on for a while how does this get better and how does it stop so walking into this conversation with us in the podcast is a friend and is a genius on all these issues it's uh, David Friedman he is a native of New York Uh, He is a a lawyer by trade, but starting in May of 2017, he was our United States ambassador to Israel. Uh, He was the ambassador that was actually in place when our embassy moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He was the one that was actually involved in negotiating all the Abraham Accords. He's been very involved in peace in the region and trying to uh, to engage uh, with our ally that is Israel. So David, I am very grateful you've joined us in this conversation. Very few people on the planet understand these issues like you do living through this. And so I really appreciate you joining in this dialogue today. Uh, Senator, it's my, my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Well, glad that you're on board. Let, let me just kind of jump in a little bit. So the, the United States is very connected to Israel. We have been connected to Israel from literally the very beginning of Israel in 1948. So walk us through a little bit. Uh, you, the United States and Israel, as we look at our relationship there, Israel's one of our closest allies in the world. How did that happen with this tiny little country in the Middle East that Israel became one of our closest allies in the world? So I think you can look at it from a few different perspectives, from just pure naked American self-interest. Israel uh, plays a vital role in our national security. We have many, many threats that emanate from the Middle East. Israel is there on the ground. It has massive intelligence capabilities within the region, in some cases even better than ours. And the the state of Israel, frankly, cooperates with with the United States, they, they view American citizens and the lives of American citizens just as precious as their own, and they work incredibly closely with with uh, with the, um, the intelligence community, with the with the FBI and others to make sure that Americans are safe just as much as uh, Israelis are safe. There's a massive commercial relationship, you know, and on the on the Nasdaq uh, after Canada, Israel has the most companies that are that are traded in uh, on the uh, U.S. stock exchange. But but then there's another component. The, the, the last component, which to me sometimes feels like the most important, is the um, or the shared values that we have uh, with Israel. You know, uh, our founding documents, uh, Declaration of Independence, provides that uh, every human being is endowed by the special certain rights, unalienable rights, endowed by our Creator. And, and, and this was a breakthrough in uh, in, in, in self-government that uh, that God Himself had given uh, people in a, unalienable rights, rights that couldn't be negotiated. 
where those rights come from? You know, how did the founding fathers know what God had in mind in terms of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and otherwise? Well, they read the Bible. And, you know, where did the Bible come from? You know, Isaiah tells us the word of the Lord comes from Jerusalem. So, you know, what, what makes us a great country, what gives us our great values are the uh, the, the, the prophetic wisdom, uh, the Word of God that came out of Israel. And I think many people uh, understand just how uh, important those Judeo-Christian values are to our society, to our, 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 you know, body politic. And, you know, I, for one, you know, as we get more untethered to those values, that's where I think America is most at risk. So, you know, I think from a, both from a, a you know, a, a commercial national security and perhaps most importantly, a spiritual sense, I think our two nations are really joined at the hip. And have been. It, it, it's this functioning democracy that is, there are a lot of democracies around the world, not enough, by the way. Uh, but in the Middle East, uh, Israel really does function as a democracy. Some, some people look at it and say it's a Jewish state. But then they get into the Knesset, which is their Congress, basically, their parliament. Uh, they get into the Knesset, and they find out not, not everyone in the Knesset is Jewish. There's a lot of different parties, uh, and it's not just two parties. We're used to Republican-Democrat. How, how many parties are in the Knesset now? Do you have any idea? Yeah, they're, they're, about, they're about 12. Um, that seems uh, to change all the time, 12, Arab... 13, 14, somewhere through there, yeah. Yeah, there's three hour parties that um, that hold about uh, about 10 percent, 11 percent of the Knesset. The the press here is, uh, is 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 brutally free. You know, um, even in the middle of a, of an armed conflict, you know, there are uh, newspapers here that are uh, brutally critical of the government. They always have been. It doesn't really matter which government is uh, in place. Um, uh, it's it's you know you see in the newspapers here things you would never see written uh, in any other country within the region. So, yeah, it's, it's a very robust democracy, very different from... And there, and there are Arabs in the, the and there are Arabs in the Knesset as well, correct? There are, there, yeah, there are about, there are about 12, there are about, about 10%, 12% of the Knesset uh, are Arabs. They are, Arabs are about about 15% of Israeli society. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're successful businessmen. They have uh, perhaps, I think, the highest standard of living of, of any Arab community anywhere in the Middle East. So, uh, uh, yeah, the, the relationship between Jews and Arabs in Israel is important, and it's a, it's a really foundational value of Israel as a Jewish state to nonetheless be, uh, be uh, to accommodate and fully empower its minority populations. So then we've got this big challenge. Some people have paid attention to Israel in the Middle East for years, and they've, they've been around it, they've tracked it. Some people are just starting to. When the conflict's happening, they're watching the news, they're going, wow, is this brand new? Uh, so for people that are just starting to pay attention to right now what's happening in Israel and the conflict between Israel and, and Gaza at this point in particular, uh, can you kind of set the context? What, what, what kind of brought this moment? And has conflict gone on for a long time in that area? And yes, by the way, is the answer. I already know where you're going on that one. Uh, but what, what, what kind of brought the seeds of conflict? Uh, but then also, what started this particular conflict? Where did it come from? Well, look, the um, the, the the conflict's been around uh, since the day Israel declared its independence on May 14, 1948. The very next day, seven Arab nations uh, declared war on Israel. Israel was at war in 1948, in 1956, in 1967, several times. In the 1980s and, and in each decade thereafter, um, Israel has not uh, been at peace for a single day in its existence. It's still in a state of war with Lebanon and a state of war with Syria. And then, uh, in addition to that, you overlay on that the um, the Palestinian population, which 
um, which is not at war with Israel per se. They're Palestinian. There's no Palestinian nation, but there are there are segments of the population that have, for many many years, engaged uh, in terrorism as a means to achieve uh, political aims, and it's. Uh, it's been going around for years. There were three intifadas. There have been, you know, you know, we're all familiar with circumstances where restaurants and buses and hotels have been blown up by suicide bombers. I mean, this has been going on for a very long time. What's going on right now, this particular conflict, is mostly, I think, should be thought of as a conflict between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Those are the two primary political groups within the Palestinian territories. Hamas is in charge of Gaza. And uh, the Palestinian Authority has control of the Palestinian territories in the West Bank. They don't get along with each other. They frankly despise each other. Uh, the PA controls the election process. There was elections scheduled about a month ago. And um, the PA looking at the polls and seeing that Hamas was probably going to do better than they had, than they had wanted them to, they canceled the elections. And so part, most of what's happening right now is Hamas attempting to burnish its credentials within the Palestinian community. Unfortunately, one of the ways to do that is to uh, is to kill Israelis, and that's what they've been doing. But just to be clear, so everyone knows, I mean, Hamas is a terrorist organization recognized by almost every nation in the world, every civilized nation in the world, as being a terrorist organization. It does not accept Israel in any form, on any boundaries, in any territory. The, the battle between Israel and Hamas is not territorial. It's not political. It's existential. Hamas does not want Israel to exist. And they express those uh, malign views by indiscriminately shooting rockets from their territory uh, at Israeli population centers, hoping to kill as many civilians as possible. And that's the battle that Israel faces today. Yeah. And okay, so let me just ask the question, where, where do those rockets come from? Because uh, not a lot of people can just say, well, let, let's just go build a rocket here. And then Gaza itself, and it, as people don't know the geography of Israel, and, and, and if, it, if people ever get to Israel, I always encourage people to go because it's such a beautiful and fascinating country to be able to uh, engage with. Uh, but it, you've got the West Bank, and it's literally, as odd as it sounds for people not familiar with it, is on the east side uh, of what is Israel there. And then you've got Gaza, uh, which is on the south and west end of Israel, uh, and it's separated out. So the West Bank and Gaza don't connect to each other geographically. Uh, but they also, as you mentioned, there's also philosophical differences between those that are on the east side in the West Bank, uh, that area for Palestinian Authority, and Hamas on it. But Hamas is, is getting all these weapons and getting these rockets and getting the funding to do terrorism from where? Well, they're getting it from Iran. I mean, that's the short answer. And, and just, you know, just as an aside to what you just pointed out, people say, well, how is it possible that, you know, you got two disconnected places, Gaza and the West Bank, all with Palestinian populations? It's not really the, you know, the... The West Bank was controlled by Jordan until 1967, and Gaza was controlled by Egypt until 1967. So they were, you know, if you lived in Gaza up until that point, you were controlled by Egypt, and the other were Jordan. So there was never a contiguous or a unified uh, Palestinian population on either side. And now, you know, there's there's uh, people, you know, claim uh, with some veracity that the people in Gaza have, uh, you know, live in poverty. They don't have, um, you know, particularly you know, high-quality access to, uh, to education and other important uh, features that we want everybody to have. But it's not for lack of money, because it costs a lot of money to build rockets. And it right. costs a lot of money to build uh, terror tunnels, which are these, you know, subterranean concrete tunnels that, you know, uh, they call it the Gaza Metro. It's a, it's a you know, it's a intricate uh, assemblage of 
miles and miles and miles of underground tunnels for terrorists to hide. They shoot a rocket and then they go down there so that it can't be, uh, it can't be attacked in response. It costs a lot of money. And that money could have just as easily been spent on schools and on uh, health care and on education and on all kinds of good things. But uh, the issue really is not that it's, it's Hamas. You know, you have about 30,000 brutal um, terrorists that are holding hostage almost 2 million people. Right. And that's the challenge. And it's the same thing we deal with. Uh, I have a conversation with Iran as well. Our, our beef is not with the Iranian people. There are a lot of great Iranian people, but they are being held hostage by the Iranian regime, their own leadership. Uh, and in Gaza, they don't have freedom of the press. They don't have freedom of religion. They don't have freedom of assembly. They, they, they don't have the basic freedoms that they have just on the other side of the border in Israel or that we have and live. They certainly don't have that in Iran as well. And there is a reason that we see Iran as the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world and has been an ongoing destabilizing force in the Middle East just decade after decade since the 1979 revolution uh, in Iran. Iran just continues to be this destabilizing force in the entire area. Yeah, it's, look, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. You know, um, the day that uh, Hamas stops firing rockets is the day when there's going to be peace. The day when, you know, the uh, Palestinians put down their arms, there, there, there will be peace. This is not, Israel has no interest, uh, no territorial uh, aspirations whatsoever on, on Gaza. I mean, they, Israel was in Gaza until 2006. They left. There's not a single uh, Jewish person living in Gaza. There's not a single Israeli soldier living in Gaza. I mean, Israel wanted out. The problem is that you know, the Palestinians keep drawing them back in uh, the, through, through their leadership in Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad with these, with these attacks, these assaults. And, you know, I, I mean, just to tell you a personal story, you know, I, I got to live through it uh, last week because I had my grandchildren here with my kids, and, you know, I had six grandchildren uh, that were, had to get woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, to the sounds of massive explosions. And, um, and, you know, to, to their, you know, great fear and, and, and hysteria brought into, you know, these kind of dark, cold uh, bomb shelters in the middle of the night. Now, you know, anybody who goes through that, you know, understands how traumatic that is and how tough it is on children. And, you know, people like to compare, you know, the body count and say, well, you know, more Israelis, you know, more, more Palestinians are dying than Israelis. But, you know, a, a democratic uh, society that did not choose this war, that did not, you know, in any way start this war, did not seek to attack any portion of Gaza, is now also living in, uh, they're living in bomb shelters, you know, uh, and kids are, are being traumatized, and, and no one should minimize the effect uh, on, on Israel, and no one should, should minimize the, the, the importance of, of responding. You know, no country would accept this type of assault on its, uh, on its sovereign territory. Right. If, if Mexico launched 3,000 rockets at Texas, yeah. we would probably respond. Would you guess? I would guess that. Yeah, I would guess. Um, I would guess uh, that we it would. would. Be, it, would it, it would be. It, it would be a different Mexico, I think, within a couple of weeks. It, it would be, and, and we would engage on that. Let, let, let me ask you a, a, kind of a, a series of questions on this. The Biden administration started engaging with Iran and renegotiating this nuclear agreement. And the big beef on the nuclear agreement wasn't that we weren't engaging with Iran. Uh, we should engage with Iran. They're a destabilizing force. They're an actor leading terrorism. Uh, we need to find ways to be able to isolate them and bring them back into the civilized nations of the world uh, in an engagement. Uh, the challenge has been is that there was a separation to say we're going to talk about Iran as a nuclear threat, but we're going to ignore basically them as a terrorist threat as well. Uh, so President Trump set that deal aside and said, no, we're going to we're going to deal with Iran with both. Iran's a terrorist threat. That's the reason they can't become a nuclear power. President Biden is now reengaged with Iran just on the nuclear side as well. 
what, what what is the conversation like just on the street and just the impression or what do you think is 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 the impression of people as the United States reengages with Iran in the way that we did during the Obama administration? Uh, people in Israel are very 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 concerned about this, very frightened by it. You know, during the Obama administration, the, the theory went that if you just kind of brought Iran back into the community of nations, these other issues, the malign activity, the terrorism, the uh, ballistic missiles, they would all kind of self-correct. And you couldn't prove that wrong because you'd have to be clairvoyant back in 2015 to know what would happen. But now, you know, six years later, seven years later, we know that that didn't happen. We know that Iran has no interest whatsoever in ending or curbing its malign activity or its support for terrorism or its acquisition of more and more ballistic missiles. And so if you don't put this all together as a package, you are going to, I think, just lead the Middle East to war. I, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm all in favor of, you know, longer and stronger, bigger and better deal that meets all these concerns. Of course, uh, who wouldn't want uh, to achieve that kind of an agreement with Iran? But by simply kind of caving in and returning to the JCPOA, which was flawed at the beginning, it's more flawed now, it's got a much shorter runway, to it. And of course, we also know from you know the work of the Mossad that Iran had lied to all the participants when it said it had no designs on a on a nuclear weapon. When you know the Mossad broke into the uh, into their uh, warehouse and pulled out you know uh, boxes and boxes and boxes of, of nuclear weapon designs. Right. Yeah. So um, they're not trustworthy. They're they're not in a good place. I mean, I look at it kind of simply. Uh, they're, they're a challenge. They are an enemy of the United States. They're an enemy of the free world. If we can resolve all the issues in a verifiable way, that's great. But that's unlikely now. And so the choice really is, do we want to empower Iran by ending the sanctions and making them stronger? Or do we want to keep them weak? They're almost broke right now. You know, to me, when you have an enemy, you have a choice, you know, broke or, or, or rich. Uh, you know, I opt for uh, broke. And that's I think, sort of a it's not, it may be simplistic, but I think it's the right way of looking at it. Yeah. I have, a, I have an odd philosophical question just to fill in. The, the relationship with Israel, as long as I've tracked this, and for years and years I've tracked this, has always been nonpartisan. It, it just not, it's not been a Republican-Democrat thing at all. Uh, the United States has stood with Israel as one of our closest allies, as a partner in democracy, as a department for human rights and freedoms around the world, and engaged in the region and commercial traffic, as you've talked about in the past. But lately, there's a group of the progressives that have really walked away from supporting Israel and are now becoming belligerent to Israel. Give us some insight on what you're seeing and kind of that trend and, and why you think that's occurring. Because this has not been a partisan issue, but now suddenly it's becoming that. Look, it shouldn't be a partisan Israel. It's in every American's best interest to support Israel. Um, I think you're seeing, you know, all these kind of new wave uh, ways of looking at the world, you know, with identity politics and uh, intersectionality, where the basic presumption is that if you're if you're weak, you must be uh, you must be righteous, and if you're strong, you must be evil. And um, of course, that's not true, and we all know it's not true. But you know, there's this reflexive attempt to side with the underdog. Now, you know, you could easily look at Israel as being the underdog, the surrounded by 22 right. Arab nations, but because Israel is stronger than it, the Palestinian. That it surrounds that surrounds it. Then you know the assumption is the Palestinians must be right. Of course, if Israel wasn't stronger, Israel wouldn't exist. So right. no one really seems to want to focus on that, you know, that inconvenient fact. But you know the other problem, Senator, is that you know you can't get tenure at a university uh, if you're pro-Israel. I mean the 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 the, acad the academic world has just become so uh, intolerant of Israel that, uh, you know, you, you can't bring in a, a, a pro-Israel speaker at the 90% of the universities. Now, university, you know, this is where our kids are getting their education. Right. You know, we got, we're sending a lot of smart kids and spending a lot of money 
at a lot of universities. We invested a lot, you know, of resources from all of our, you know, state, local, federal governments. And you can't get a balanced view of Israel for whatever reason. I mean, it's just uh, maddening. When I talk to university professors and uh, to university presidents especially, uh, I ask them the question, your universities work very hard on diversity, and that's a good thing to be able to have diversity in the university setting. Do you also work very hard to have uh, diversity of opinion and and diversity of philosophy uh, in your university? Because often they find, they'll say, we'll we'll focus on diversity like on skin color or other things to be able to look at and go, great, let's have great cultural voices there. But do you have diversity of options of opinion of what people are actually getting? And progressively, less and less that is so. Where it is, yes, we can have, as long as everyone thinks alike, you don't have to look alike. And that I'd like to be able to see people that don't look alike and also don't think alike. That provides a diverse uh, education, and we're not seeing that anymore. That's a whole different issue. I'd love to be able to dig in more on that. Let me ask you just a couple quick questions (laughs) because we're going to run out of time. There is this belief at times that I run into people that say, you know, I've never been to Israel, but I understand Jews and and Arabs don't ever talk, don't ever interact. There's never any interaction with the Palestinians and with Jews. You know that's not true. I've seen that's not true. There's lots of communities where there's business engagement, there's integrated business, where families are actually next-door neighbors. They've worked it out where you see leaders that are in opposition, or as we see in Gaza with uh, Hamas and uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad in some of these organizations, and as these terrorist organizations that they're trying to push people away for their own gain of power. But the people, when they're neighbors and interacting with their families and their kids know each other, it's very different on the ground. Is that true? It's totally different on the ground. Look, you can go into the largest hospital in uh, Jerusalem, Hadassah Hospital. You go into the emergency room. The odds are you'll be treated by a Palestinian doctor uh, and a Palestinian nurse. There are more Palestinian doctors and nurses there than uh, than, than Jewish. Um, it's true uh, in universities. It's true in, you know, kind of everyday business. Um, Jews and Arabs live next door to each other in places like Haifa and in Yafo and in Jerusalem. And... Um, and they get along, and they, and they want to get along. And in fact, uh, you know, over the last few weeks, when there have been some really disturbing riots inside of Israel in these mixed communities, what was the reaction? The, the, the vast majority of people came out, and they, they had their own rally. And the rally was, we want to live in peace with each other. So um, it's, it's, it's really part of Israel's DNA that they, it's, it's critically important for Israel to live in, in, in coordination and coexistence with all the people. It's a very diverse country for such a small country. And... It's the only Jewish state, and, and believe me, I, I mean, I, when I was the ambassador and, and there were conflicts, I worked very closely with the Israeli government. There's nothing they want less than uh, than interracial conflict, international conflict, inter uh, interreligious conflict. They work really hard to avoid that. Sometimes it flares up, but as soon as it does, they try to get back to work right away to fix it. Yeah. Sp- speaking of that, uh, this, is my, this is my last question. I'd love to be able to keep picking your brain for hours, but uh, let, let, this is my last big question, but it's a big one. You were a leader in the one of the most significant diplomatic achievements in decades of any place, but most certainly in the Middle East, the Abraham Accords. Abraham Accords set a foundation for how peace could be done in the Middle East with Israel in particular and what that might look like. Freedom of religion, freedom of opportunity, open up commerce, open up uh, trade agreements and such. A lot of folks said that that's never going to happen. You got to solve the Palestinian issue. Once you solve the Palestinian issue, then the other Arab nations will engage. But President Trump and you, as a leader there on the ground, and others, Jared Kushner and others, it said let's turn the whole thing on its head and to say why don't we start reaching out to Arab nations 
and saying, do you want to form these trade agreements? Israel's been reaching out their hand for a long time, and you actually discovered that the dialogue was not only open to occur, that it has actually been settled. And we now have four nations that have formed uh, agreements through the Abraham Accords uh, with Israel, uh, Bahrain, um, UAE, uh, Morocco, and Sudan. Uh, that is historic because we've not had an agreement like that in decades. Um, and so you've actually led that to four, but also left the door open to say, if more nations want to join, here's how to be able to do it. Here's the basic pr- uh, parameters of that. That is a remarkable agreement to be able to get. H- how did that come about? And what does that mean now for the door to be open in the days ahead for other nations to be able to join it? Well, the door is open, and I think other nations will join because I think they're seeing, notwithstanding the, the immediate conflict over the last couple of weeks, they're seeing great opportunities here. Look, we, we did something, it may sound simple, but we did something uh, kind of basic. We, we, we met with these countries and we said, look, you can focus on one of two things. You can focus on the grievances of your grandparents or you can focus on the opportunities for your grandchildren. You know, what's more important to you? And, um, and, you know, that, that really was the message. We said, well, enough already, enough of this. Most of the people that are fighting don't even remember what they're fighting about, especially these countries that are, you know, in the, in the, in the Persian Gulf that don't border Israel. I mean, they're, they, they, they have not been at war with Israel. They, they, there's no uh, common boundaries. And reflexively, though, they were so hostile to Israel because everybody was doing it. And so we just challenged them to think about it in a different way. And we also showed, and you know, back in uh, January of 2020, we put out a peace plan, which the government of Israel endorsed, which showed that Israel was willing to uh, to uh, agree to uh, territorial concessions and, and other you know major concessions in order to live side by side with the Palestinians. And I think when these countries saw that Israel, you know, was was willing to do this, and you know, I think it made a difference. The other thing that was, I think, very important, and I'm sorry to take up too much time, but. Um, we, we put in our plan a provision that the government of Israel endorsed that the um, that there would be a, you know a protocol to encourage Muslim tourism to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's the third holiest place in Islam, and none of these people had ever been there. Never, none of these countries had ever been to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and, and they had been hearing stories that it was under siege and that uh, Israel was uh, denying that people access. The, the exact opposite is true. The, uh, the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is located on Judaism's most holy site, but the mm-hmm. state of Israel only permits, only permits Muslims to pray there. Jews cannot pray on the Temple Mount, only Muslims. And we said to uh, these countries, you know, you're being dragged into religious conflicts that are just a complete—it's uh, it, just made up. And so the idea that we would encourage them to come and to see and to see for themselves the sensitivity that Israel places on the Muslim holy sites— I think also gave uh, them a lot of uh, assurance. Look, it, it took a lot of negotiating, but this is a win-win for all these countries, for the region, and I, and I believe others will join. So it sounds like you're optimistic long-term about where we're headed in the region, barring what's actually happening, what we're looking at right now. And uh, obviously this battle back and forth with Hamas terrorists and uh, Israel trying to be able to respond to that to say you, you can't just shoot rockets at Jerusalem. Uh, barring that whole what's happening yep. right now, when this settles in, you have a long-term optimism for the region. I very much do, yes. Well, David, that's great to hear, and it's great to be able to visit with you. Thanks for allowing us to be able to pick your brain and to be able to go through these issues. Keep your family safe uh, there in Israel. Uh, we're grateful to be able to get your time and incredibly grateful for your leadership. What you did during the uh, 
Trump administration, the ways that you led, the engagement that was there, again, moving the embassy uh, was seen as this highly controversial move, which ended up being incredibly positive. And we've seen other nations like Guatemala and others that have moved their embassy uh, to uh, Jerusalem as well and uh, beginning to engage in a fresh way to be able to take on these difficult issues that have been around for millennia, quite frankly, uh, or at least, um, let's say, decades uh, in the modern age as well. But grateful for your ongoing leadership and what you continue to be able to do there. So thanks so much for joining us on this. Uh, for those of you that are listening in on this, listen, you always know that you can subscribe uh, and just so you get a notification if you enjoyed this conversation. We have conversations like this every month with folks and, and with leaders to be able to talk about some of the complicated issues of the day. To be able to get more details, subscribe to that. Uh, you can also subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Uh, stay in contact with us on social media at Senator Langford at all the different spots in social media or on our website at langford.senate.gov. But stay in contact with us. Let's keep the dialogue on some of these hard, complicated issues, uh, because as we talk it out and as we work it out, we're going to work to be able to actually get to real solutions. So for David Friedman, Ambassador, thanks again for being able to join us today and be a part of this dialogue. Your insight is invaluable to us as we try to understand these tough issues that we're facing. And we will do what Psalm 122 calls us to do, and that is pray for the peace of Jerusalem and uh, continue to engage. You, so Senator. God bless you all. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks Senator. for your engagement. Thank- and thank you so much, Senator, for your leadership on, on all these important issues. It's really very much appreciated on this side of the ocean as well. Well, blessings to you and your family, and stay safe.